0: Two weeks ago, someone stole my wallet. They got everything, my driver's license, debit cards, credit cards, gift cards, cash, coupons, checks, because I'm 100 years old and I still carry checks with me. (laughs) Even my library cards, I'm so lame. When I opened my purse and I realized that someone had rifled around through my things and taken my wallet, I felt violated. It felt unjust. Maybe you've experienced something similar and you know the feeling. It was frustrating. I had to pause my plans for the day and call my bank to close all my accounts. Over the last couple of weeks, I've spent hours updating my account numbers with all these different companies just so my bills get paid on time. Such a hassle. And I couldn't buy anything. For those first few days until my new cards came in the mail, I would have the impulse to run to the store and just grab something real quick. And I would remember, oh wait, I don't actually have any money right now. How inconvenient. It's no fun to be the victim of an unjust crime, to be the person targeted by a thief, which is why the story we're going to read from the Bible today might make no sense to you because, spoiler alert, in the story that Jesus tells, the hero is the thief. But before we get to that, let me give you a refresher and catch you up to speed if you weren't here last week. Last Sunday, Norton kicked off a new series called Mine. That's all about money. Now, as people, we're usually pretty skeptical when the topic of money comes up, probably in general, but maybe especially at church. I think the reason we get antsy when people talk about money is because we tend to think nobody else has any right to tell me what to do with my money. I can do with it what I want because everything I have is mine. If I'm honest, that's why getting my wallet stolen was so upsetting, because I see my wallet and everything in it as mine. But that's not how God sees it. God has a very different perspective. We said last week that God is the owner of everything. He made this world, and therefore, he owns it all. Everything is his. Everything we have, we've been given by him. None of it is actually mine. We said everything belongs to God. Everything comes from God. Everything is distributed by God. God is the owner, and we are his stewards. We define a stewardship as simply protecting and growing the owner's assets to achieve the owner's goals. A lot of the time when churches start talking about money, they start asking for money, but that's not the goal of this series at all. We just think the Bible has a lot to say about money and that Jesus cares a lot about how people, and particularly His followers, use or steward money. In fact, instead of asking you for money, last week, we actually gave away money to everyone who was here. every person who was here left with an envelope that had 10, 20, 50 or 100 dollars in it. And we encouraged you to use that money to practice having a stewardship mentality. There is no more money to give away today. I'm really sorry you came on the wrong day, guys. Instead of thinking of yourselves as the owners of that money, we said we're placing this money in your hands to steward and to use to invest somehow in God's kingdom. Take it home, think about it, pray about it, get creative, and use this money however you want to invest in something that God cares about. We even said one rule is that you can't give the money back to New Denver Church. So today, we're going to continue talking about what it means to have a stewardship rather than an ownership mentality, especially when it comes to money. And to help us do that, we're going to look at a story told by Jesus that gives us some keys to help us begin thinking about what it means to be a steward. Let's read Luke 16, starting in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. This is a made-up hypothetical story that Jesus is telling. And in this story, there's a rich man who makes lots of money, he has lots of possessions, and so he has this manager who works for him to oversee his money and possessions. This manager's job is stewardship. He's supposed to be protecting and growing the owner's assets to achieve the owner's goals. Well, apparently, this manager isn't doing that very well. People are coming back to the rich man, the owner, and saying, your manager is not protecting or growing your wealth. In fact, he's wasting your money. So with these accusations about mismanagement and bad stewardship, the owner calls in the manager and says, this is unacceptable. Finish what you're working on, close out the books, give me a final accounting of where things stand, how bad the damage is, and then you're fired. Here's how the manager responds. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. What should I do? He's going to be looking for new work soon, and that's going to put him in a tough position because he's not strong enough for physical labor, he says, and he's too proud to beg. Getting hired as someone's manager again will be out of the question once his reputation gets out that he wasn't very good at it. He'll be ostracized in the community by everyone, by his social equals, by those above him, by those below him, if he doesn't come up with something quick. He knows he's getting fired, but he realizes that his boss is giving him a little bit of time left. So he has this narrow window of opportunity. He needs to get creative. He needs to figure out a solution as he's closing out the books. He needs to do something clever that will set him up well for the future. But what? He says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Aha! He's come up with a plan, something to ensure that he's got relationships in the community after he's fired. And apparently, his goal is for people to take him in and let him live with them. Essentially, the new job he's pursuing is that of professional couch surfer. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He sets up meeting with all the people who owe the owner money. These were likely people with some money themselves, tenant farmers or merchants with business loans, not super poor people just trying to get by. There would be people with enough means to be able to show the manager the hospitality he sought once he was officially out of a job. He asked the first, how much do you owe, my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. That's a lot of olive oil. That was the yearly yield of one or two big orchards of olive trees. So this is a hefty business loan. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Here, sit down real quick and doctor the record. Slice your bill in half. The master will never know. We can assume this debtor is like, whoa, thanks, pal. And if there's anything you ever need, don't hesitate to ask. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So twice the manager does this. Twice he gives these under-the-table discounts, and he probably does it with all the other debtors, too. These are just two examples that were given. And then look at how Jesus ends the story. The master commended the dishonest manager. It's the same word here for the earthly master or for the Lord as in Jesus. So this could mean the rich owner in the story, or it might actually mean Jesus commended the dishonest manager. Why? Because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I think this story trips up a lot of us at first glance because Jesus commends the dishonest manager who is mishandling the owner's money and who even intentionally makes the owner lose out on more money, as we see in the story. By having the debtors alter their records so they don't owe as much, he's essentially robbing the owner of what should be his profit. Why would Jesus commend such a person, a dishonest thief? One thing that's really important for us to know as we're trying to make sense of this story is that in Jesus' culture, people didn't have a context for a generous, wealthy person. In their limited goods economy, the prevailing thought was that there would be enough resources to go around if the rich did not exploit the poor. The fact that there were poor people was proof that rich people were taking too much, more than their fair share. So Jesus' disciples, the original hearers of this story, would have immediately interpreted the rich man, the owner, to be the villain. That may sound odd to us, but actually we do have a framework for this. My favorite genre of movie is romantic comedies, hands down. If I know a movie is going to be happy and funny and end with a wedding, I'm sold. (laughs) But my second favorite genre of movies is heist movies. Think of Oceans 11 or 12 or 13 or 8. In a heist movie, the rich man, usually a casino owner, is the villain. And the hero is the thief. We root for the thief or the team of thieves as they plot their course of action and as they execute their plan and all the little pieces come together. We don't usually see right away how it's all going to work out and it makes us so nervous for them. But then their grand plan is revealed and they accomplish their mission at the end and we all cheer. They may be stealing, but it feels just. Nobody is rooting for the rich villain. That's how it would have been for Jesus' disciples as they heard this story. The rich owner is the bad guy. So it wouldn't be alarming to them that the shrewd manager is portrayed as the good guy, the one Jesus commends. They would have been intuitively rooting for him all along. Just to be super clear, Jesus never commends the manager's dishonesty. Jesus is not condoning stealing. He commends his shrewdness. The manager was shrewd. He was savvy. He made the most of an opportunity. He knew he had a little bit of time left in his job and a little bit of influence left with these debtors, and he used that to his advantage. In a strange way, Jesus is commending his stewardship. The shrewd manager stewards his time and his relationships well, even if he didn't steward his master's money well. Jesus is talking to a group of people who are thinking the end is near. And he's telling them, yeah, live like it. Be a good steward of your lives, your time, your relationships, and your money, because your days here are short. Don't get too caught up or bogged down in short-term, trivial pursuits. Make the most of every resource and opportunity you have here and now with your eyes fixed on your eternal future. Jesus says that the dishonest manager was more shrewd than most people, especially people of delight, followers of God, because he had his eyes on the prize, his eyes fixed on the future. But then Jesus gets very specific in talking about money. After Jesus tells this parable, he adds some commentary that's explicitly about money. Jesus continues on in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. The manager used his position and influence to gain friends for himself so that they would welcome him into their homes once he was fired and had no place to go. We are to use money and wealth to gain friends for ourselves so that we'll be welcomed into their homes in eternity. When we invest in God's kingdom with the money he's given us to steward here and now, Jesus is saying that when we get to eternity, the people who are impacted by our giving will be waiting there to welcome us home. How cool is that? when we're good stewards of God's money in this life and we're using his money to invest in the people he cares about, what we're actually doing is making ourselves friends for eternity. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but someday we'll all die and all the money, possessions, and assets we've accumulated will be taken from us. We don't get to keep those in the new creation, in the new heavens and new earth. But there's one thing that we do get to keep And that's relationships. Relationships with God and with others. We'll live with God in a perfect place, a physical, created place in human bodies with other humans forever. And the way we use the money we've been trusted with now matters. We'll either use money for things that are insignificant when it comes to eternity, or we'll use money in ways that will have an everlasting impact. As we get further into this series, we'll give lots of super practical ideas for how we can be good stewards of God's money. But in our passage today, Jesus gives us three keys for how we can begin thinking about what it means to steward worldly wealth. The first key is this. Everything we have, all our worldly wealth, is a tool for God's kingdom. Everything we have, everything we've been given, all the money we make and inherit, all the stuff we acquire can be tools for God's kingdom, tools to join God in his work of redemption and restoration in this world, tools to draw people closer to Jesus. Jesus goes on. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus tells his followers to be trustworthy in their dealings with money, to steward money with integrity. If we had any doubt on what Jesus' stance is about honesty and dishonesty, these verses clear that up. Honesty is important. God is looking for trustworthy stewards. The second key for stewarding worldly wealth is this. Everything we have is a test of our faithfulness. Money is a test of our trustworthiness. And if we're faithful and trustworthy with worldly wealth, then one day God will trust us with true riches. It's like God is saying, I have so much more in store for you. I have so many blessings and opportunities and true riches that I want to give to you. But let me see how you do it a little bit first. I'm going to give you this amount of money and stuff to start with, and I want to see how you invest it in my kingdom. Because one day we'll stand before God, the owner, just like the manager in this story, and we'll give an account of how well we've invested what he entrusted to us. He'll want to know, did you just spend it on yourself? Did you just buy stuff for yourself? Or were you one of those people that understood that you were my steward? And you took what you were given and invested it in my kingdom purposes. Money is a test of our faithfulness. It's an easy way to gauge, am I thinking like an owner or like a steward? We think faithfulness is really hard to measure. It's not. God just looks at what we do with his money to see whether or not we're being faithful to him. Everything we have is a tool for God's kingdom, and everything we have is a test of our faithfulness. There's one more key to help us think about ourselves as stewards. Look at how Jesus finishes his commentary on money in verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here Jesus really gets to the heart of the matter. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. We might assume that Jesus would say you cannot serve both God and the devil, But he doesn't. The word we translate here as money means more than that. It includes material goods. So think of it like an umbrella term covering money, wealth, possessions, assets. We cannot serve both God and stuff. And it's like Jesus is saying, what you do with your stuff is an indication of whose you are. Money and possessions are a tool. They're a test, and they're a trademark to indicate whose you really are, who your heart really belongs to. That's the third key for stewarding wealth. Everything we have is a trademark of who we belong to. Who is your master? You're not your own master. That's not an option. And you can't serve both God and stuff. They're mutually exclusive. According to Jesus, either God is your Lord and master and you serve him, or your stuff is your Lord and master and you serve it. We all know what it's like to become slaves to our stuff when we keep sinking more and more money into maintaining a car or a house that keeps breaking down, when we feel like we have to upgrade our devices every year or two just so that they work properly, when debt enslaves us, just think about all we owe if we combine our mortgages, our car payments, our student loans, our credit card balances. Jesus says, let me offer you a new perspective. Money and possessions are a tool that you can use for God's kingdom. Money and possessions are a test of your faithfulness. And ultimately, money and possessions are a trademark of who you belong to, who you really love. We tend to think of money as something that's neutral, but when Jesus talks about money, it's almost always with a negative connotation. And here we see why. Because money competes for our affection like little else. Money takes a hold on our hearts. When my wallet got stolen, it exposed how I feel about money. If I'm honest, it exposed that I love money. And I'm guessing that you're probably in the same boat. So let me ask us a question, why do we love money? Money means different things to each of us, but I think probably all of us love money for one or more of these three reasons. To some of us, money represents status. Buying certain brands or styles of products carries a certain esteem with it that we're drawn to. It gives us an identity. Having certain things can help us be seen in a particular way. Some of us love money because of the status it can bring. To others of us, money represents security. If we can just save up enough, then we'll be safe. No matter what happens or what hardships life throws our way, we'll be able to survive. We'll still feel like we're in control because we've saved up for a rainy day. Some of us love money because of the security it can bring. And then to others of us, money represents satisfaction. And if anyone is keeping track, I used two lists today that all started with the same letter, so I think that's like 50 extra pastor points. Money represents satisfaction satisfaction. Money allows us the feeling of gratification, oftentimes even instant gratification. With one click of a button, we can buy whatever our heart desires and have it shipped to our door later that day. With one tap of a card, we can go to whatever restaurant we choose and eat the meal we crave. Money allows us to enjoy life's little or big pleasures. Some of us love money because of the satisfaction it can bring. This was the hardest part for me in not having my wallet I lost the ease and convenience of getting what I wanted, when I wanted it. I have that security gear a little bit. I want the security that money can bring. But I think my spending gear probably outweighs that. I want the satisfaction that money can bring. So I know that when my wallet was stolen, I could have had my husband, Phil, go to the bank. He still had his ID, and he could have gotten out cash for us to use. But I thought it would probably be better for me to lean into this opportunity for a spending detox, to see how long I could go without spending any money at all. I only lasted five and a half days. Jesus knows that whether we're motivated by status, by security, or by instant, albeit temporary, satisfaction, money can easily grab a hold of our hearts. For one reason or another, we all love money. And according to Jesus, we can't love money and love God. I want us to look at one more verse from Scripture. The writer of Hebrews says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The author begins by echoing Jesus. Keep your lives free from the love of money. That sounds familiar. But then there's something new. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? Here's the rationale. Because we have God. God. What more could we need? We don't have to fear he is with us. He will provide. He is enough. That's why we can be content. It's hard for us to think of ourselves as stewards rather than owners when it comes to money because we all love money. We tend to think it's mine. I'd encourage you today to think about your own attachment to money. What is it about money that beckons you towards it, that tempts you to love it? Is it the promise of status, security, temporary satisfaction? Pay attention to that. Get curious about it. Don't judge it. After all, we all want to feel secure. We all want to feel satisfied. We all want to have the status of belonging and feeling loved. But then consider if you might be trying to use money to fill a need or a desire in your life that only God can actually fill. Money tempts us with the promises of status, security, and satisfaction, but it never truly delivers on any of these promises. Our desire for status, really for belonging, for feeling known and loved and included and accepted for who we are. Our desire for security, for feeling safe and protected. And our desire for satisfaction, for feeling whole, complete, and content. These are good desires placed in us by God. But they're placed in us by God for him to fill, not anything or anyone else. When we look to other people or to money, wealth, and possessions to fill these desires, we'll always end up disappointed. It's too much to ask. It's too much of an expectation and a burden to put on anything or anyone else. It's not realistic. They can't do it. Nobody and nothing can fully, completely know us, love us, keep us safe, and make us perfectly content and satisfied. Nobody and nothing accept God. The incredible thing in all of this is that he can take status. Because God made us, he knows us each fully, inside and out, and he accepts us. He includes us in his family. He says, in me, you belong. Your status is as one who is accepted and loved. Security. God can keep us safe. In this life, we will have troubles. God may allow difficulties to touch us, even harm us temporarily but he's able to offer eternal protection. In eternity, we'll find ourselves completely safe for the first time ever, with no need to fear anything. Nothing will be able to harm us. Nothing will be able to touch us. We'll be 100% perfectly safe from danger forever. Can you imagine living in such a place? Can you imagine living with zero fear of harm? No need to save for a rainy day because such a calamity will never come? And finally, God can actually satisfy us. He can make us perfectly complete and whole, content. It probably won't happen on this side of eternity. But are we that short-sighted, or can we learn a thing or two from the shrewd manager who had his eyes fixed on securing his future? Right now, it's really hard to be content. It's really hard to be satisfied because the world is not as it should be. Our lives are not as they should be. We look at our homes and our cars and our clothes and we're dissatisfied. We're not content because everything could use improvement. Everything could use an upgrade. Our things wear out, they get old, they break, they go out of style. It can feel like you're running yourself ragged to try to get ahead of it all or to even just keep up. But we're running on hamster wheels here. Just around and around, this vicious cycle of buying, experiencing satisfaction that's oh so fleeting, and finding ourselves discontent once again. No single purchase keeps us satisfied for very long, which is why we have to keep spending and chasing that high. Around and around and around we go. Jesus' perspective is this. Hop off the wheel for a moment. Open your eyes to get a glimpse of your future. It's a future where you no longer have to make purchases to gain temporary satisfaction. In the new creation, everything will be as it should be. Can you imagine living in a place where you're never dissatisfied again? Where you're perfectly content? This isn't pie in the sky wishing. This perspective, this theology grounds us today as we live in the here and now. I walk around my house and I see project after project so many things I'd like to change and improve. I easily get caught up in the hamster wheel of, if I just pay to fix this, if I just buy that. I chase satisfaction and I'm always tempted to use money to do it. But the satisfaction bought by money never lasts. Some days I have moments of clarity and I think, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth, this ugly flooring won't exist. I'm so grateful for that. These weird door frames, these chipping countertops, this asbestos-filled popcorn ceiling, I won't have to worry about any of this once I get to eternity. Jesus told his disciples that he's going to prepare a place for them. He said in his father's house are many rooms. I think that's an understatement. I'm holding out hope that God is right now at work, building me the home of my dreams, and that one day he'll be waiting there to hand me the keys and welcome me into it. Do you have moments of clarity like that? Moments where you know and can feel in your bones that this world is not all there is, that this is not the end, that all our desires will one day be fulfilled, but it's by God, not by the things we can buy here. I'm convinced that once we stop chasing the false promises made by money, our affection for it will fade. We won't be enslaved to it any longer. We can use it open-handedly as a tool for God's kingdom. We'll pass the test of faithfulness. The trademark on us will say we're the Lord's. We belong to him. It is God who we love and serve. When we're no longer bound by our love for money, we'll be freed up to be mere stewards, mere conduits to use God's money in the ways he would want, in ways that can make an impact for eternity. Let's pray. God, if we're honest... We admit that we love money. We do. We so often buy into the lies that it can meet our deepest desires. We confess that today. We bring that before you, and we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for not being good stewards of your money, for keeping way too much of it back for ourselves. We ask that you show us how you want to meet our legitimate needs for status, security, and satisfaction. Show us more of who you are that you are a good Father who delights in providing for us, who loves us so much, and who just wants our love in return.